Well, this morning, if you will, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to start looking at the second chapter today. We've been uh, working through this wonderful letter from the Apostle Peter to the churches. And now we come to the second chapter of this great work. And Peter is now shifting some focus here. And today I think what the Lord is having us read and to listen to, there's something important here for us to hear. So if you can, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. And let us begin in chapter 1, verse 25, that last verse of the, of the first chapter, and then we'll read through the first three verses of chapter 2. But the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Amen. Let us pray. Dear God, you give us all good things. We are here this morning gathered as your people because, God, you have called us through your Son, Jesus Christ, to salvation. And you have called us to be your people, and that is good. You have drawn us into all good things. And, Father, thank you for showing us in your word that all that you say, all that you do, all that we taste of your presence is good. I pray, God, this morning you'd speak to each and every one of us here. I pray, God, that you would search all of our souls. And, Father, if there's anything harbored inside of us that is envious and malicious and deceitful and slanderous, God, you would reveal that into us. If we have not tasted your goodness, Father, then all obviously those things are going to be who we are. But if we have tasted the goodness of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his love for us on the cross, God, I pray that you would show us how to put that away. Teach us, God, what it means to be loving and to be gracious rather than malicious and deceitful. This time is yours, Father, so I pray, God, whatever your hand seeks to do, please do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. I don't know about you, but anybody have a favorite food? It's summertime, right? There's certain things that we eat in the summertime that we are craving. Anybody got a craving this summer for watermelon? Has anybody had a good watermelon yet? Have the good watermelons arrived yet in the market? But we still got a little time. I don't know. I had some watermelon last week. It's pretty good. How about hot dogs? Anybody like a good hot dog in the summertime? Oh, yeah, the kids are all going, yeah. You know, with kids, you got macaroni and cheese and you got hot dogs. Everybody's happy, right? Are hot dogs good, kids? Amen. Right. Put, some, put some chili and some onions and some cheese on there. You got that, too? But think about this. We all have a favorite food, right? So, you know, for some of us, our favorite food may be ice cream. And whenever we have a favorite food, what is it, what is it about that food that is, makes it favorite for us that we always, are always drawn back to it? 
You think about it, ponder that. I mean, whenever families get together, is there sometimes a special recipe that everyone expects to be there? It's because it tastes so good, right? And we have this excitement. Hey, we're going to grandma's house and she's going to make that wonderful pumpkin pie that only grandma can make. And we, and our taste buds start to water and, and we crave it. We desire, we expect it, don't we? And so all of these things that we taste that are good, all of our favorite foods, all of our favorite things to experience, what makes them good is that they attract us back to it. And it always brings fond memories, isn't it? Right? Soul food and comfort foods, we call them that because they restore our souls when we just gather around as families and share. And, and it's comfort food because we may have me having a horrible week, a horrible day, but if we sit down around a table with our family and we share that wonderful food, we bring comfort to everyone there. I think Peter here in the second chapter of this wonderful letter, he's bringing this attention to the experience of salvation through Jesus Christ as something that is tasty and good. It tastes wonderful to experience this salvation in Christ. Because if you remember the entire first chapter, Peter is writing words of encouragement to the church and he is going through and reminding the church exactly what their salvation is worth. You remember that? So all of the first chapter of this wonderful letter, Peter is addressing and describing and defining and and establishing the value of salvation in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he's reminding the church, you are bought with a hope. You are bought with a price. You have an eternal glory. You have been born again. Don't forget that wonderful salvation that God has caused to happen within you. And if you have experienced that wonderful salvation of God, that God has caused to be born again in us through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, then that is something that we have tasted that is good. Amen? Amen? So now, at the end of the first chapter, the very last verse there, Peter is reminding and closing out this initial chapter with a reminder of the Word of God, right? The Word of God is important. The Word of God is valuable. He says here, and of course he says here, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So he's writing here to the Christians. He's writing to the church. Because only those of the church, those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, would actually understand what he's writing here. He's saying, this word is the good news that was preached to you. Only the faithful would have heard the good news and responded. And Peter would have been emphasizing this for their sake. Now, what's he talking about here? I don't know about you, but the Christian life is not always cotton candy, is it? Now, that initial encounter with Christ where God redeems us through Jesus' blood, where He embraces us through His Holy Spirit and convicts us of our sin and shows us forgiveness and love and mercy and grace, that is a delicious, sweet moment. 
But how quickly does the new Christian encounter some difficult times as a new Christian? Can we say an amen? So it's one thing to be drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit and experience the mercy and the grace of God and the forgiveness of our sins, and now we are new creatures in Christ. That is a beautiful, wonderful experience. But then suddenly, life happens. Persecution comes. Doubts start to creep in. Can we say an amen on that one? God, do you still love me? Did I really experience your love? Peter here is writing this letter of encouragement, and I think these words here are very important for us here. Because in those moments of doubt, in those moments of persecution, in those moments of struggle and sorrow, it's always good to be reminded of how good the experience of God tastes. Amen? I don't know about you, but uh, there, there have been, you know, we, we all have these weeks that are, some are better than others, and some days are better than others. But sometimes I'll find myself kind of in this spiritual struggle with the Lord and, and doubting what He's doing and what in the world are you having in front of us here, God? Where are you? Maybe maybe we just say we doubt that God even exists. Maybe we doubt that He still loves us. Maybe maybe we think that He's pulled His hand from us. We don't know. We have these moments of doubt. And you start asking yourself, if you really start pondering in those times what's happening, in my life I've, I've, I've analyzed and realized, wait a minute, I've not really poured God's word into my spirit this week like I used to. Anybody been there? Maybe we've been watching television. Well, we don't watch TV anymore now. We watch Netflix. That's like its own thing now, right? The kids understand what I'm talking about. We can't talk about cable anymore. It's all Netflix and Hulu and YouTube, right? Maybe we're watching things, pouring media into our minds that is so worldly that God gets set to the side. Maybe we're listening to things on the radio in the car that are not as godly as we should be listening to and suddenly our spirits are drawn away. Now, that this is not a condemnation of media and movies and TV and streaming. I mean, we live in a world that is what it is. We live in a culture that, I mean, media has its purpose. To get the news, we need to have it. To be encouraged, we must have it. So, in those moments, me personally, I've gotten to the point where I will intentionally make myself listen in the radio as I'm driving to Christian radio. I'll make myself, if I'm sitting in front of my computer working and, and I'm seeing stuff, I want to make sure I'm listening to maybe some Christian preaching or teaching or listening to good Christian music. And suddenly, my depression, my sorrow, my doubt kind of shifts a little bit. Sometimes more radically than others. You see where we're going? Because sometimes this, this good word that we have tasted, this good word of God that was preached to us, we forget it. And it's always good, and I, I love what Peter is doing here. And he's reminding the Christians, don't forget that wonderfully good news that you tasted. And allow that memory of that beautiful taste of God's presence to draw you back to it. Just like when we go to Grandma's house and we're craving that apple pie, we want to crave the Word of God again. Amen? 
And it's good for the Christians in the church to encourage each other this way. That may be one of the best encouragements we can give each other. If a fellow brother or sister is having a difficult time in the faith, maybe they're struggling with their faith, they don't know where the hand of God is, their life is all in a mess, maybe the best encouragement we can give each other is, have you tasted the word of the Lord today? Maybe that's the best thing. Instead of wallowing in our pity and wallowing in our misery, and yes, we must listen with compassion to one another, but maybe tasting the good news of Jesus Christ through the Word of God is the answer. Maybe that's a great thing that Peter's encouraging here. You see, since God's Word is permanent, would you agree that God's Word is permanent? It says so in verse 25. But the Word of the Lord, what? Remains forever. It is flawless. It is permanent. And since God's word is permanent and since the permanent word is what the church heard when it was preached to them, then God's word is the basis for a life committed to scripture. The Christian's life, the new Christian, the the life of of the new one made new in Christ, the basis for that life is commitment to scripture. Commitment to God's word. And, and, and that commitment to Scripture is the only power that is even possible for the Christian to live the Christian life. We cannot be Christians and just have an experience sometime at Backyard Bible Club or Vacation Bible School when we're six, seven, eight years old and never look at God's Word ever again the rest of our lives. If that's the case, we are, we are doomed to failure in the Christian life. But is that not what we practice too often? Oh, let's have vacation Bible school. Let's draw the children in and teach them the gospel. But then we never train them as they mature in the Word of God. They have this wonderful, tasty experience, this good taste of the gospel, and then they go right back into their world of video games and TV and media and and never hearing the Word of God on a regular basis like they should. And then we wonder why the church is falling apart. Amen. Parents, right? What is it that we are, not just our children but ourselves, in our homes, what is consuming us? What are we, what are we tasting? What are we consuming in our spirit? Are we, are we, are we, Tasting and consuming God's word, or are we consuming the world? I mean, if, if the world is what's causing us all this pain and sorrow and, and agony, why is it that we keep eating more and more of it? We have to live in the world, yes. We can't abandon the world. We can't isolate ourselves from the world. But if we are Christians living in the world, we cannot have a diet of 100% worldliness. We have to have a diet primarily of the word of God. Amen? Because this good news is the Word of God. This good news that was preached to us is what was so tasty and and attractive and still is what is desirous within us. We desire that good gospel that we know. Matter of fact here, in in verse 25 of chapter 1, and I promise we're going to jump into chapter 2. The idea of this good news here in verse 25, this is the word that we get evangelism from. 
the euangelion. This good news that was preached to you. Have we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Amen? If you have not, you're going to hear it today. Are we going to be preaching and sharing this good news with others and consuming it and and partaking partaking in it on a regular basis? I hope so. Now, down chapter 2, verse 1, now Peter shifts and he continues to exhort the faithful. Right? Peter is, this letter is a letter of encouragement and now in chapter 2, Peter is now going to encourage the church to persevere in the faith. This is an important doctrine of the church. This is an important doctrine for Christians to remember, to persevere in the faith. Right? What does that mean to persevere? It means don't quit. Right? I'm not a sports guy. Some of you may be more sports minded than I am. I know Josiah is, Tim is, the Cody's, they, they are a great sports family. They have raised some wonderful kids. Anybody else who deals with sports, where, I mean, I know Dwayne, you're involved in MMA at some time, at one time, right? Physical stuff. You cannot, when you are in any kind of act, any kind of physical activity, any kind of sports, any kind of, uh, of combat, any kind of work that you undertake, you must always persevere to get through and be done. How does work get finished if you quit every hour? When the work gets too hard, do you quit the job or do you persevere? Same thing with the Christian faith here. Peter is encouraging the church. He is exhorting them to be faithful, to deny the world, and to possess, and actually, Peter's actually encouraging the church to possess a contempt for the world here. Ponder that. Do we have a contempt for all things that are worldly as Christians? Or do we embrace the world as, oh, well, it's no problem? Right? Now, this is not a condemnation of all things in the world because we still are called by God to be a light to the world. Yes? But we are not as Christians, according to Peter's words here, to actually love the world more than we love the gospel. We are to actually deny the world and actually be actually hate it, possess a contempt for it. Because if we are Christians, we are freed from the world. We are freed from the bondage of the sinful flesh. We are actually free to live in Christ. And Peter exhorts the faithful, encourages us to embrace that. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what he says. Now, my translation says, so put away. Some translations say, therefore. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Now, this first verse of chapter 2 from Peter is actually an imperative. It's a command. Okay, It's not a, if you want to, please put away all these things. If you feel like it, please put away all these things. He's making it very clear. So, and referring back to this word that they heard in chapter 1, verse 25, he's saying, so, because you have heard the word, because the good news was preached to you, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. Now, what does this look like? Is this, verse 1, a, a exhaustive list of all the things that we're supposed to put away? No. Chapter 2, verse 1. 
is actually Paul's encouragement. It's this list here of malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander is kind of a, it's an all, it's, it's a summary of all sin, really. It's, a, it's like a category of all sin in all worldly living. Peter is reminding the church, he's reminding all that are saved, that the saving power of God's word in our lives, in the lives of the church, is actually the basis for our commitment to the church and to scripture. If that's the case, these things, malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy and sin, there's no room for that. He's actually saying, because you're in Christ, now live according to that new life. Right? If we have been saved by Christ, if we've been bought by his blood, there is a new life that we are to live. And if that's the case, there is absolutely no room for these sins in verse 1. You ever pondered that? But unfortunately, how many people are taught, oh, just make a decision for Jesus and all is okay. And then the rest of their lives, they don't even live a Christian life. There's no evidence of Jesus in them whatsoever. And you look and you say all of these things, this anger and this malice and this deceit, they're liars, they're envious, they're slanderers. That's who they are. They never changed. That to me, and according to Scripture, is evidence that they are not saved. So put away all malice and deceit. What, is, what does this look like here? I mean, what is malice, right? Malice is this idea in, in Scripture. It's a word that is used often throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. Malice is general wickedness. That's a great word. We don't use that word anymore, right? Wicked, right? We don't use that word anymore. Now, we'll, 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 we'll attach that word wickedness to an imaginary witch, right? Well, if we're watching some movies or some cartoons, we may have a wicked witch, and we just, that kind of waters down the seriousness of this way of living, this, this general wickedness. I mean, I'm sorry, it's, it's a real thing that we should avoid, yay? What is deceit? If malice is general wickedness, Deceit. Everybody knows what deceit is. Actually, the word here in the Greek that is used for the word deceit is actually a word that was also used for a fish hook or for bait. Whenever you're fishing, what are you trying to do to the fish? You're trying to deceive the fish into thinking that the bait is real, correct? Has anybody here ever been hooked or drawn into something that you regretted later because you were deceived by it? That's the implication here on this idea of deceit. It's dishonesty. It's actually causing people to believe something that you want them to believe that's a lie. You manipulate. We got any manipulators here? You actually intentionally manipulate to get your way? That's called deceit. Hypocrisy. The next thing that he talks about is hypocrisy. I mean, hypocrisy in this context is dealing with the mask that an actor would wear. Something that's not genuine. Some kind of a facade. You're putting forth an image of, of piety and honesty, but really, deep down, you're just generally wicked. That's hypocrisy. Envy? What is envy? Envy can be resentment. We resent that what someone has done toward us or we resent that someone has something better than us. It's holding grudges. That's actually envy. Yes, we can be envious of what other people have, but we can also be envious that, wait a minute, they hurt me and nothing happened to them. And then we build up a grudge 
against them. Anybody like that? And then lastly, he talks about slander here in verse 1. The, the, the implication here of slander is something that the silent whispers. If something cannot be spoken in public and by the person who is being saying it. In other words, if you can't stand up and own what you're saying and you have to speak something in private by whispering so that no one hears you, that's slander. Gossip. I always remember years ago whenever uh, church, this is a church that I uh, pastored years ago, but I've seen it in other places. It's not just in church, it's also in politics. Um, Whenever someone begins to speak and they never mention the person's name that they're talking about, they always say, now they said. Now I've always said there's actually nothing good that comes after the word they. Whenever you hear that beginning, now they said, nothing after that comes is good. It's all gossip. It's all slander. Paul here in chapter 2 verse 1, I'm sorry, Peter says in chapter 2 verse 1, there's no room for this in the church because there's no room for this in the life of the Christian. Because the Christian has heard the good news. This Word of God that remains forever. All of these other things of the world has to be put away. It has to be cast off. This implication in verse 1 of being put away literally implies stripping off things that are dirty and so on. Like taking off a dirty jacket. Mamas, you got kids that come home after playing in the mud and you make them take off the dirty clothes. That's the implication here. The new Christian has all of this dirt and filth on their garments. They must put away, they must take off all of this old life of theirs and toss it away because they've been made new in Christ. Now let's think about this in a, in a deeper context. I mean, the Apostle Paul actually addresses this very well in Galatians chapter 5. Flip over to Galatians chapter 5 for me. What Peter is talking about in this second chapter of his first epistle, the Apostle Paul also teaches. So this is evidence between two great apostles of the church of exactly what the foundations of the church must be like. Beginning in verse 16, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The Apostle Paul here in Galatians chapter 5 makes it real clear. It's the same argument that Peter is giving in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you are new in the Spirit, then there is a new life here and the, the, the... Attitudes of the flesh and the attitudes of the Spirit do not mix. They cannot. And the Apostle Paul here makes it real clear. Here, again, this is not an exhaustive list. 
See, in the modern age, we say, well, just give us the facts, ma'am. Just give us the details. Give me the checkoff list of what I can get away with and what I cannot. If it's not on the list, then it must be okay. Correct? Well, now, the Bible never says anything about going to movies and stuff. Now, listen, I love going to movies. Don't get me wrong. I love taking... When my boys were younger, I loved... We went to every single superhero movie on opening weekend. Didn't we, Josiah? That was my promise to them as a father. There's nothing wrong with literature and art, entertainment, in the right context. Because God has given us the ability to create art, to create music, to write stories. The question is, is that wonderful gift of God used for His glory or is it used for the world? That's the, the, that's the line there. See the point? So this is not a condemnation of media, not a condemnation of movies per se. The question is, how much does that control our lives versus how much does it enrich our lives? Pete, I mean, the Apostle Paul here in Galatians 5 makes it real clear. The works of the flesh do not work with the, the works of the Spirit. They don't jive. They, it's like oil and water. They never mix. And the works of the flesh are very... This list here, verses 19 through 21 of Galatians chapter 5, that list, if you just read that stuff, I think most common sense people would say, yeah, that's bad stuff. Now, why is it as Christians... Sometimes we still embrace these things. If there is fits of anger that come up in us uncontrollably, perhaps that's a sign that we're in the flesh, not in the spirit. If we are jealous, if we have strife, envy, if these things are so dwelling in us that they control us, perhaps that's clear evidence that we're not in the spirit, but we're in the flesh. Now let's continue here in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 24. Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit... Now this is the contrast here from the world, right? This is what Paul's getting ready to talk about here is this is what the Spirit looks like. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Honestly, look at this list here in verses 22 and 23 of Galatians 5. If these attributes described you, would that be a wonderful thing? How many of us strive to be joyful and peaceful and kind and gentle? We all hope to be like that. Perhaps we envision ourselves to be that way, right? We hope so. But maybe... Maybe we're not so kind or gentle like we should be. Now, go back over to 1 Peter chapter 2. But hold your finger in Galatians 5. 1 Peter chapter 2. Here is what Peter continues to speak about in verse 2. He's made it clear in verse 1. We have to put away the things of the world, put away the things of the flesh. And now he, in verse 2, he's now going to speak about what it looks like to be Christians. Verse 2. Like newborn infants, 
long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Right? Like newborn infants. Anybody like babies? You know what's interesting, and from my perspective, you have to understand as the pastor, I see everybody's expression when I speak. When I talk about babies, ladies, you just light up. And the men are just kind of going, oh boy. Nothing wrong with that. Ladies, you just, you know what, you know what it's like to have a precious newborn. They're precious and they're sweet. Even though they may keep you up all night long. See, that's what the men are looking at. Men are saying, man, I, I didn't get a good night's sleep for, for months when my baby was born, whatever. Ladies, just, oh, that's okay. Right? Newborns are, are newborns innocent and sweet? Yeah, there, there's an innocence to a newborn, isn't there? There's a, there's a sense of hope in a newborn. We look at a new baby and we say there's, there's a new life, there's a hope of a new life here. And that's what we're embracing. There's something sweet about a newborn. But look here at verse 2. He's encouraging here the church. He's comparing the church, the Christians, to newborn infants. Because if we have been bought with the blood of Christ, if we have been born again, caused by God's mercy and grace, like Paul, like Peter speaks about in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. If we have been bought again, if we've been born again in Christ, then we are like newborn infants. And verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Anybody who's ever had the privilege of feeding a newborn infant with a bottle, how does that baby react to that bottle when they're hungry? Right? If a baby is hungry and their belly is empty and they have been fed before, they know... I know I want that milk. I want that. In, I want that formula. I want that bottle. And, and are they excited to get it? Well, sometimes, yeah. And when they finally do taste that bottle, have you ever watched a baby just really just just soak in all of that milk from the bottle to the point that they're like sucking the bottle dry? <laughs> you ever been there? And what happens when the baby doesn't get that bottle? That's when the baby's not so innocent and sweet anymore, right? That baby is desiring and craving that milk because they've tasted it before and they know that it's good and they know that it's going to satisfy this hunger pain within them. They can't express it with words like a mature adult, but boy, they'll let you know, I want my bottle. Right? Sometimes it's sweet. Sometimes it's great. And Paul and Peter here in, in chapter 2, verse 2, is talking about the church, talking about the Christians. He's comparing them to those newborn infants who are craving, who desire pure spiritual milk. If we are new in Christ and we've tasted the goodness of God and we've tasted the goodness of salvation in Jesus Christ, then we will constantly be longing for and desiring that pure spiritual milk. Now, some translations literally in verse 2 say, they say this, that as newborn infants desire the sincere milk of the Word. They'll take it that much farther and, and describe desire the sincere milk of the Word. The great uh, humanist Erasmus, who was a great thinker in the church, he actually comments on this passage 
and he says that this milk is not milk for the body, but milk for the soul. You know, we have, we have physicians, we have surgeons that can fix our body when it breaks. And how many of us, whenever we're sick or we've hurt ourselves or we've, we've caused a bruise or, and we need to go to the doctor to get that repaired, we'll go do that. But how many of us actually take seriously the state and the health of our soul? It's one thing to repair and keep healthy our body, but how, I mean, are we keeping our soul healthy as well? I would argue that that's more important. Not from a, not because I'm a pastor, but ponder this. Whenever we are living in turmoil and strife and the world is going crazy and our life is chaotic and we have stress in our lives, what is it? Our soul is diseased. Our soul needs repair. Our soul needs nourishment. And so we must take care of our soul. Amen? And that's what Peter's talking about here in chapter 2, verse 2. As Christians long for that pure spiritual milk, Take care of your soul, in other words. And take in that milk that is free from malice and deceit and hypocrisy. Instead, go for that milk that is necessary for spiritual growth in this new life in Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's what Peter's talking about. That's why he's encouraging. Now, this milk here in Peter's letter... We, we, may, we may confuse this with the metaphor that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you don't have to, well, if you want to, you can turn there. I'm going to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because we, we may read this in Peter's letter and confuse what Paul is talking about. 1 Corinthians. Chapter 3. One second. Here we go. First Corinthians chapter 3. Actually, Paul, in the letters to the Corinthians, this is the contrast between Peter's letter. Paul's letter to the Corinthians is, it, these two letters are letters actually of uh, admonishment, condemnation, whereas Peter's letters are letters of encouragement. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 1 he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I feed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. You see, in this context, Paul is actually criticizing and admonishing. He's reproving the church because they are so immature. And so he's using the, uh, the imagery of the milk as, as a reproof for the church. Whereas Peter here in chapter 2 of 1 Peter is actually using milk as an encouragement. See, Peter views milk as that, that savor, that wonderful, delicious new birth. That tasty craving that we all have. This infancy that he speaks about is not talking about immaturity, but actually he's talking about the contrast between the old self and the new self. The old man of the flesh and the new man of the spirit. So this infancy of Peter is different from what Paul's talking about. 
And that's important to emphasize here. Because that new birth, that new life in Christ means that the Christian has been born again. This regeneration of the self that God has caused. Whereas the old flesh is dying. It's full of sin. Now what is Peter closing out here in chapter 2, verse 3? He's reminding them, leading from 2 to 3, that like newborn infants, you need to crave this spiritual milk that helps you grow into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that's an important point to close on today. Peter is referring to Psalm 34 that we read today. That was our scripture that we read today as a congregation. Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, in verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter's reminding them, encouraging them, all of these things I'm commanding to you, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's actually calling them to account here. If you have never tasted the goodness of the Lord, then you will not understand this call to put away all sin and malice and contempt because you're still there. Some of us in this room may be listening to this thinking, you know what, I don't understand what Peter's talking about. I don't understand what Pastor Bryant's talking about. What's wrong with the way I live? According to Scripture, that's going to be the response to the Word. If if we have not indeed tasted the goodness of the Lord, we're not going to understand how wonderful the Christian life is. But, if indeed you have tasted the goodness of the Lord, you get it. You understand that the goodness of God is more desiring than the world. So how do we close this out and apply this? I mean, as a church, let's ponder this for a minute. And this is where it can get a little bit dicey. This is actually where pastors get into a lot of trouble because we step on toes. Folks, what is it in your life that consumes you? What is it in your life that you desire more than anything? What are we addicted to? What are we attracted to? Are we attracted to the Word of God? Are we attracted to the ways of God? Are we attracted to the delicious milk of salvation? Or are we more attracted to video games, movies, entertainment, materialism, going into debt to buy things that we don't need? Wishing and desiring that we had a better life and we do everything the world tells us to do but the life never comes and we get upset and stressed. What are we teaching our children to love? This is important. This is not a condemnation. It's something to ponder as a family. What is it that your children talk about more than anything? That tells you what they love. That tells you what they are a part of. If a child talks about one thing more than anything else, that's what they love. So the question is, are our children talking about the Word of God at all? 
As families, that's the responsibility God has given us. Amen? As adults, what is it that you crave and desire more than anything? That right there is a great indicator of what we love the most. Whatever is causing our stress and frustration, I promise you, is not of God. Now, God does convict us. God does challenge us. Trust me, I've been there. He has taken me to the woodshed more times than I dare admit. Amen? Anybody been there? But there's a difference between God disciplining His children and His children embracing the world. There's a big difference in encountering that. And, and if you're in the Word and you're in God and in His, His, His grace, you understand the difference. The frustration from embracing the world causes nothing nothing more than more frustration and more stress and more chaos. But the frustration of God disciplining us always brings us to a repentant embrace of God's mercy and love. You see the difference? So as we close out today, I want us to take some time to ponder and think on these things. Does there need to be a readjustment in what we desire? Can we encourage each other in that and help each other in that? I hope so. I think this congregation, we I've, I've watched this, we, we've developed friendships and a bond here. I think in a lot of situations we can be honest with one another and say, this is what I see in you. Can I just tell you what I think? That's a good thing. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Dear God, you love us enough to give us good things. Even your word here, God, sometimes can be challenging and difficult, but even in that challenge, it's good. I pray, God, whatever it is in us that does not align with your will is what you would challenge us to remove and put away like a soiled, dirty coat. Whatever is not of love and encouragement and grace and mercy and kindness is of the world and has no place within your people and within your church. Lord, I pray that you would put upon us and within us your spirit that is holy and loving and kind and merciful and gracious. Cause us to be made new every single day. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for the salvation you give us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the provision of all that you provide for us. But God, I pray that each and every one here would be given a desire for your Word. Not that they can make it on their own, God, but only you can instill in each and every one of us a hunger for the goodness of your word and the goodness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Love us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.